Investors Chronicle. Hello and a very warm welcome back to the IT Interviews. I'm Dave Baxter and today I am very pleased to be joined by Anthony Cross, one of the managers of the Lion Trust Special Situations Fund. This is a name that may well be already familiar to you. It's one of the biggest names in the sector among UK equity funds and among the best performers from that sector over the last 10 years or so. It's been uh, driven by a focus on quality companies and also a decent tilt to the small and mid-cap sector of the market. More recently, of course, like some other of uh, many people's favourite funds, it has been one of the names to be harder hit by the sell-off. It's had quite a rough 2022 and also been hit by some, some outflows as investors worry about the impacts of inflation and of the rising rate environment. So, Anthony, thank you for, for joining. Very topical time, of course, still, unfortunately, to, uh, to, to be speaking about markets. You know, you've, you've seen many different conditions. You, you've worked on this fund since it launched in 2005, I believe. And now a lot of your kind of discussions in, in fund updates has been about fundamentals of companies. You know, are they holding up even as many of their share prices have been plummeting until at least very recently? To kick off, I, I'd be interested to hear where where have you seen perhaps surprise resilience and also where have you maybe had reason to sort of have some concerns? Are there any areas where you have thought perhaps it's held, holding up slightly less than, uh, than we might have expected? Brilliant. Um, great question. So where have we seen resilience? Well, there's two aspects to resilience. One is obviously <laughs> share price resilience and the other one is earnings resilience. I'm pleased to say that on the earnings resilience front, uh, the the style, the process uh, has really helped with the resilience of earnings. So you'll recall that we're looking for intellectual capital, intangible assets in businesses that we think provide very strong barriers to competition. So a strength of either intellectual property or distribution power or high recurring income. We're also looking for companies of high returns on invested capital. So cash flow returns on invested capital. So the types of companies we own have generally been businesses that have got some earnings resilience behind them. Uh, They are what we would describe as quality businesses, often with a nice growth aspect to them. So, so far, what we've been finding with our earnings of our companies is that they've been holding up well. Uh, They tend to be in sectors often with structural growth behind them. They tend not to be overly cyclical. So lots of companies in areas like engineering or media businesses, pharmaceutical companies, software companies of high contracted recurring income, uh, some of the fee-based financials, the big consumer goods companies. Mm. So the resilience has been there on the earnings front. The share prices, though, of a number of companies have been under pressure, particularly at the beginning of the year, when there was that definite switch from uh, quality and growth type businesses into value companies. And that was particularly pertinent in January and February time that that big switch went on. So we see the share prices of a lot of our companies come down, particularly at the beginning of the year. Mm. But so far, pretty good resilience on the earnings front. Many of our companies have been meeting or beating expectations. As time has gone on, clearly people are more worried now about recession. Uh, Economic growth has come down in terms of forecasts, and there has been a recessionary feel, definitely in areas very closely aligned with the consumer. So companies often that we won't be owning in areas like retailing or or in 
in areas like sort of leisure or restaurants have definitely been having profit warnings in the UK. Mm. Uh, but so far, we've escaped that. Where we have seen more recently a little bit more of a concern about economic growth and some downgrades to um, future numbers uh, are companies like Savills in Property and Michael Page in Recruitment. So some of the more cyclical elements of our portfolio have just started to see a little bit more of a foot on the brake in terms of future forecast earnings coming through. So that's the flavour of where we've been at year to date. Mm, it's interesting you mentioned Page Group, um, and I, I believe as of the end of last year, you also had Robert Walters. Um, do you, I mean, it'd be interesting to expand on that point. Do you think kind of employment will hold up better in this recession than previous ones? Um, we've seen kind of a very early warning sign from Page Group fairly recently. You know, how, you know, what's your feeling on that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's very difficult to know where we might be going with regards mm. to economic growth. Clearly, there is a slowdown. Uh, some people think there'll be a recession. Some people think there'll be a deep recession. Some people think there'll be a light recession. Uh, and what we deliberately don't do as a style is try and do great economic forecasting. So our overall footprint is quality growth. We tend to have more dependable businesses than the stock market as a whole. Uh, so cyclicality in the fund is what we would describe as our quality cyclicals. So companies like Page Group or Savills or Robert Walters that can continue to invest in the downturn and then hopefully come out more strongly into the next upturn. And we have engineering companies like Renishaw that do that too. Mm. So with Page Group, you know, what is going to happen to employment? It's difficult to tell. Um, one of the great things that the company and Robert Walters too have is that compared with previous downturns, they've just become more and more international. So your spread of earnings around the globe is much bigger than it would have been 10, 20 years ago. So the recessions for these companies have a different impact. Um, they tend to be uh, more regional in terms of their impact rather than, than overall um, clobbering the companies. So you might have a downturn in the UK, you might have a downturn in Europe, but there'll be other parts of the world that are holding up better for them. And as I say, they should go on investing during that downturn. Um, there, there seems to be at the moment, um, employment rates seem to be holding up quite well. Uh, what's happening at the moment in terms of why Page Group have had a downgrade is that there just seems to be long, companies are taking a longer time to make decisions on recruitment. Mm. So it's almost like things are getting a bit delayed uh, in the recruitment cycle. And that's what's caused the, the latest uh, slight downgrade in, in profit forecasts. But where employment numbers go, it's very difficult to gauge at the moment. Certainly Page and Robert Walters have benefited by uh, people deciding to change job a bit more. Um, maybe the home working enables people to go to more online interviews and things. So there's been more turnover, more activity in the employment market. People are, are holding out for better wages and are moving around from job to job. Uh, but I can't tell you at the moment, you know, wh where we're going in terms of this employment cycle. Very difficult to read. Mm. And, and staying with this cheerful uh, recessionary feel note, um, at least as of the end of last year, you you had a fair few um, platforms, investment platforms among your holdings, names like Hargreaves and AJ Bell. Uh, are you still holding these for now? And, you know, how do you feel about holding them if we do kind of move into a downturn? 
Yeah. So again, back to the style. What we're trying to pick is companies that we'd be happy to own for an indefinite period. Mm. Long-term compounding businesses with these intangible barriers to competition, high returns on invested capital. Quite often, they've got structural growth behind them. And with the platform companies, they've got strong returns, they've got strong distribution networks, they've got high recurring income. Uh, they are businesses that have got the structural growth of long-term savings behind them in terms of, of that long-term growth. But clearly, if stock markets are going to have a more difficult time in the short term, that's going to hit their earnings. Um, that doesn't necessarily worry us. Um, you know, share prices might come down. Uh, when share prices are down, we might add a little bit more back into these businesses. We've been buying a few more Harvey's Lansdowne. We bought a bit more Integrafin. Mm. Um, so in some ways, a long-term approach, having a downdraft in share prices is good because it allows you to sort of top up again and, and hopefully rebuild as you then move into the next cycle. Yeah. Um, so we're happy to own these businesses. What has been certainly a trend in these companies and all three of the companies we own, AJ Bell, Integrafin and Harvey's Lansdowne, is that they are investing more into the businesses. So they're investing more into technology at the moment. So you know, some people would say, oh, well, that's a sign of more competition about you're having to make these investments. Well, maybe that could be the case, but it also could be the case that they are going to come out with even stronger positions from having invested more in technology. The more they can embed their customers into them, the better. Um, you know, businesses will tend to go through various phases of of, of investment spend, and then there'll be a plateau of spend, and then another ramp up at, at a later stage. We seem to be in a stage at the moment for the platform companies where they are having to do some investment within the business. Mm. And how do you feel about, I mean, Hargreaves is always a very topical one for our readers, given many will be both customers and uh, investors, but the, the questions there are always around whether they can maintain their sort of, I suppose, their market share, that really dominant position they have. And, you, you know, you mentioned kind of um, tech investment, which uh, seems to be, you know, very, very kind of future facing, very sensible. But, you know, there are areas where perhaps they're more vulnerable, like pricing, you know, you have competitors like Interactive with their flat fee. You know, how, what's your kind of mood on that? Yeah. So, I mean, there's always, and there has been a degree of pricing pressure right across the sector in the last few years. And you've seen, uh, people like Integrafin bringing their, their prices down for their customer base. Um, with hard groups, again, there is, you know, there is more price competition about. But we do believe that there is a trade-off in the con in consumer's mind between uh, necessarily chasing the lowest price versus quality of service. And particularly for those customers with Hargreaves Lansdowne, you know, the the quality of service is high. They are kind of what we would describe as kind of embedded. So they are often customers who are, you know, they've got they've got the system that they're used to. They've got the customer relationships that they're mm. used to. Um, people are more reluctant to to move from business to business um, than perhaps the stock market thinks they might be. We think the stickiness of the customer base, the the lack of churn. Uh, will play to the benefit of people like AJ Bell or, or to Hargreaves Lansdowne. So mm -hmm. we're not overly worried about them suddenly losing loads of customers to competitors. The harder thing might be to try and win fresh new customers. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, whether it's economic conditions or whether there's a sign of that, 
it's difficult to tell, but certainly in the last numbers for Harvard's Lansdowne, the very recent period, the last few months, the amount of net new customer wins has been perhaps lower than what people were hoping for. Mm. On just sticking briefly with Hargreaves, one development that's kind of crossed our desk is them perhaps in some ad hoc cases doing discount deals for kind of higher value customers where they're potentially going to go elsewhere. I mean, is that something you've been aware of? Is that something you've kind of, um, you have view on? Yeah, so I mean, that could well occur. And you, you see that elsewhere in other other wealth management companies where, you know, mm. people who have got larger blocks of money will potentially get lower levels of overall fee. Um, that's the kind of competitive element that I said earlier are kind of is definitely about there is mm. there is elements of fee pressure so again it can come down to the operational gearing of businesses so you know some businesses like integrafin can take net new flows all the time which they are doing which enables them to be also able to lower fees for their existing customers so there's sometimes a trade-off if, as long as Harvey's Lansdowne can kind of get net new customers um, grow their business and the long-term growth of stock markets and, and wealth, then they can over time, you know, afford to, to lower fees for their end, end clients if the overall business can absorb that with the operational gearing of higher levels of funds under management and higher over, overall levels of clients. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a bit of fee pressure around, definitely. Mm, mm. And how do you have any views on the kind of what you might call the neo-brokers? You know, you've seen uh, really big uptake of, of names like kind of free trade over at least over the earlier pandemic days um would they are those kind of businesses perhaps too kind of nascent to even uh start to tick your boxes you know how do you feel yeah th th they'd be too nascent for us i mean they're certainly not um businesses that we would invest in um mm -hmm. and i i know it's, it's back to the kind of a client relationship the embedded nature of of hargreaves or aj bell's clients um, yes, some of these new businesses will perhaps take new clients or fresh new clients on tradings of stocks, but the big wealth management platforms are providing that kind of long-term wealth service to their customers, and it's much more about buying, buying funds, getting a degree of advice, um, providing strong customer service, helping them with their tax returns, helping them with their cash management, They're a much bigger service than just trading in shares. Mm, yeah, yeah. So moving on to um, a very, very different sector, you know, you you hold uh, GSK, so you will have received shares in, in Alien when it when it spun off very recently. Um, I'd like to ask a, a fun two pronged question, you know, are you, first of all, are you interested in keeping hold of those shares? And then secondly, you know, how do you feel about the kind of new slimmed down GSK? What are, what are the prospects there? Yeah, so we have got obviously now both GSK and we and we've held on to the smaller portion that came out with the um, Halion. So the, the 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 process that you know what we talked about earlier in terms of distribution networks, um, intellectual property, uh, worked very well for the pharmaceutical Glaxo business that we have. Um, we think it's a company that has got a uh, a good pipeline of business. It's got a very strong distribution network around the world, stacks of intellectual property. Uh, it's got high returns on invested capital. Um, so it's a company that we're happy to own. 
clearly the recent Zantac news has been uh, not well taken by the stock market. It's actually mm. quite old news, but it's something that the stock market is suddenly lightened on to. Mm. Um, but that's always the danger with pharmaceutical companies. There's always a, a regulatory risk. But at the moment, we're happy to own um, Glaxo for the long term, just like we own AstraZeneca. So, um, the, so the legal concerns aren't kind of enough so far to sway you on the investment case? No, no. We, but neither have we rushed out and bought more because the shares have come <laughs> under pressure. We tend, what we tend to do is just kind of stand back a bit, try and absorb the news, think about it carefully and not be kind of knee-jerk on these things. Mm. Uh, you know, sometimes these things will crop up. Um, you know, and we've had it with with other businesses where there's a regulatory risks does come through. Um, sometimes it's it's not great news. Sometimes it's not as bad as the market fears. So it, it's it's best not to rush in and buy more. But, but quite often it's best not to to sell out either. Just just calmly reflect is what we tend to do. Mm. And then with the spin out, um, the consumer goods business. Again, we've been reviewing it. It's got some strong market positions. Uh, but um, uh, it's early days in terms of our assessment of the business. Um, we want to check out more its returns on invested capital. Uh, so there's more work coming through from Quest, the database that we use for that. Mm. So we haven't added to our position. Um, we have similar businesses like Unilever and, and Reckitt. Uh, so it's a kind of area that you know we like as an investment style, distribution networks, brands, uh, but you know, it's time for a little bit more assessment on the company. Uh, it's got some nice brand positions, but it's also quite geared as a business. So we, mm. we you know, that it's how much we want to do out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was going to ask: Do you do you suspect it could become a um, a bid target? I mean, even perhaps for one of your existing positions, like like Reckitt and you know Unilever pre- previously did a did a bid itself. Um, and how would you feel about that? I mean, definitely it could do. Uh, and again, we tend to, when these things occur, we we look at them in, on their merits and we'll mm. look at valuation and, and work out whether we think the price is attractive or not. Clearly, the kind of Zantac news might be something that puts people off for the moment until there's greater clarity on that. But yeah, yeah I mean, Unilever looked at it before and no doubt people will be looking at it again. Yeah. Picking the moment. Yeah. And I guess that brings us uh, neatly onto you know a subject you you guys have talked a lot about this year, which is kind of M and A and corporate activity. Um, you've had a fair few of your holdings from CareTech to Clipper Logistics attracted by your interest, and I suppose you've also partly been on the other side of that with names like Next Fifteen Communications. Um, fund managers sometimes get fairly. I suppose hot under the collar at M and A. Get very frustrated about you know a. a multi-bagger potentially being taken away from them before they can keep that compounding going longer. You know, what is your stance on, on M&A and this kind of heightened level that we've seen in, in recent months? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of mixed, really. It depends on the valuation and what people are mm-hmm. trying to buy your business for. So we had a very, you know, an attractive takeout price for Clipper Logistics. Mm-hmm. Um, IdeaGen, CareTech felt pretty reasonable too. Go back a, a year or so, we felt the takeout price for Agreco was not attractive enough, so we voted against that deal. And then my eyebrow, eyebrows raised the other day as I read in the FT that there's strong demand for a, a temporary power at the moment, particularly in in areas like you know where there's terrific amounts of heat and uh, disruption 
to power. Uh, and also people are now worrying about whether we might be short of power this winter. So people have been booking up temporary power units. So, you know, when Agreco was taken over, we said, well, look, you know, yeah, it's, a, it's a reasonably full price, but not really quite good enough, particularly as this is a business that, you know, has got itself back in shape and should be able to compound growth for a, a good time yet. So we didn't like that deal. Uh, but there'll be other deals, as I've said, that where the share prices have been that much more attractive. So you have to just look at them on a case-by-case business. Mm. What you do have to feel, obviously, is that there are times when the stock market gets overly worried and you do get a dislocation in price. And private equity are very good at coming in and uh, buying businesses on the cheap. Or when the stock market has been overly excited and overly positive about things, private equity are very good at offloading things uh, mm. at that moment too. So um, I think the stock market could be a bit cleverer about when it deals with private equity. I suppose the the sterling weakness we've seen this year doesn't help either. And then you have more of your kind of overseas bidders swooping in potentially. Yeah. So, uh, you know, companies that have been buying our, um, our businesses out of the fund, you know, quite often been US-backed businesses mm. with, with that dollar strength, definitely. Mm, yeah. On that note, how, um, I mean, this is very much, I feel, industry jargon, but I was like to think about the kind of opportunity set for your, what you're looking at, what you can invest in. How has that shifted this year? I mean, I suppose you've had some names taken away from you, which may be slightly bittersweet. But on the other hand, um, you know, you do delve into areas like FTSE 250 and small caps, and they've taken an absolute battering this year. So, you know, how is that shaping up? and where is looking interesting? Yeah, so the opportunity set has got better because, as you've rightly said, prices have come down. So you're looking at valuations of companies that are you know, sometimes 30 or 40% cheaper than they were at the start of the year. So as I said earlier, the price has come down, but the earnings have been pretty well intact. So there are companies that we've been buying little bits for as new holdings in special situations like Team 17 or Focusrite or, or Midwich. Um, you know, these are sort of businesses that are uh, doing well, but their, their share prices have come back a long, long way. Um, there are companies more in the sort of 250 or the, or the kind of the bigger space. We've been adding to companies like Moonpig, where we bought a position. Mm. We never bought it at float and the shares had been uh, uh, came down below their float price. And we've been gradually building our position there. We've been building our position in Future Group. So the environment of lower share prices has been quite good news for us being able to deploy some cash into those companies. And a number of those shares were looking quite expensive back in the autumn of 2021. Mm -hmm. Then they got hit hard in January and February this year and provided opportunities to be topping up quite nicely. So the opportunity set is, is bigger at the moment. And there are other small companies, for example, that we could buy for the fund if we if we wanted to, uh, but at the moment we've got about 23, 20, 23, 24% of the special suits fund is in small companies and we target between 20 and 30% in small companies and that includes AIM companies. Uh, so we feel we're kind of about right at the moment, uh, but there's, there's scope if we wanted to, to increase that position. Mm, I was going to say, would you ever kind of push beyond that range if, the, if things were looking particularly compelling? No. No, we, 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 we target to have between 20 and 30% in small caps. So that's FTSE, FTSE 
small cap FTSE fledgling and AIM companies, mm. uh, and then 40% plus in FTSE 100, leaving uh, you know 30 40% in the FTSE 250. Mm. As, as I mentioned earlier, you know your, your fund is especially large, one of the largest ones in your in your peer group. Um, but you still do kind of focus on small caps to an extent. Um, does that, I mean, how does that affect the kind of deployment of cash? I'd assume it must take you a bit longer to kind of move in and out of kind of things lower down the market cap spectrum than, than perhaps when the fund was smaller now a long time ago. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely when I started Special Sits way back in 2005, you know, the small companies we could buy could be quite small, small companies. They could be what we, what we would describe as micro-gap companies. Today, the fund is that much bigger. So to get a sensible unit position in a fund, in that fund now, you know, you need to be a, a small-cap company of, of a market cap, say, of 500 million to uh, get a sensible you know, 1% position uh, within the fund, within that company. Um, so that has obviously meant that the, these small-cap companies now are of a bigger scale. Um, it also means that we tend to have more of them. So there's more of a portfolio effect to small companies in special sits than there would have been 10 years ago. Um, that has good things and bad things about it. Clearly, there's less risk if your average unit position in each individual small cap company is smaller. So if it goes wrong, it is less costly to the fund in terms of performance. But on the other side, it does mean that you, know, you can't get the kind of two and a half three percent position in the small cap company that if it really compounds well can add you know a terrific amount to performance from its individual performance coming through so mm. you know you, you kind of win and lose a bit the key thing is to try and get that portfolio of really good small caps that you think can do good long-term compounding and you know it's a really good source of alpha for the fund we've got a lot of small cap expertise uh, within our team. We've just expanded the team. Natalie Bell has just joined the team. Uh, she'll be doing a lot of work on small cap with Matt, Victoria and Alex. Um, and that small cap expertise within the overall team is hugely valuable to special sits and over the years has provided a lot of alpha performance. So uh, something that I think we we really, really benefit from. Mm, mm. I suppose it's interesting, you know, you mentioned your, you allude there to the fact that you do have other funds that focus more so lower down the market cap spectrum, but they are open-ended, so they have to contend with the kind of inflows and outflows. Would you guys ever be tempted to kind of move into the investment trust space where you can, you know, not worry about that liquidity so much? Yeah, I mean, it would it, be nice. It, it would it'd be no bad thing to have an investment trust, but they're really hard things to mm. either launch because people don't like putting money in at a pound to see it 90p the next day. And then there are also very difficult things to take over, in a sense. So uh, you know, getting hold of an investment trust with, of a meaningful size is, is always tough. Uh, and launching one, as we all know, is, is tough. So uh, it's the kind of thing that we've looked at from time to time, but nothing on the, nothing on the idea slate at the moment. Mm. Uh, but the investment trusts are quite well suited to our long-term style and, and to smaller companies as well. Mm, yeah. And just moving back to your portfolio, I mean, moving away up the market cap spectrum, um, I suppose one, one kind of uh, segment of exposure that perhaps has helped you in the, in the rougher points of this year has been 
positions in in BP and also Shell. Um, how how would you say they fit in with your whole kind of economic advantage approach? You know, some people might argue it's you know much more cyclical, much more. Some people might say it's a declining industry, whereas others will disagree. But what's your what's your case? Yeah, so the case at our, our top level, the intellectual capital level to start with, is that these are businesses of very strong distribution networks. So you think of Shell, for example, as the biggest retailing business in the world. It's got the biggest uh, liquid gas distribution network in the world. It's one of the big top three energy trading businesses in the world. Um, and the distribution networks are strong, but they're also married up with some strong intellectual property. And stronger intellectual property than the stock market will probably give these companies credit for. Uh, but there's lots of uh, deep know-how and there's lots of patented intellectual property within these businesses. So we think on intellectual capital, they are, they are strong companies. Um, their returns on invested capital have been more volatile uh, they are, as you rightly say, you know, much more allied in in terms of their profitability to the, the oil price. So they're much more price takers than most of our businesses within the fund. But they have a cost of capital compared to the, they have a return on capital, cash flow return on capital compared to their cost of capital, which is much more like a cork. It tends to bob, bob along above or sometimes below their cost of capital. And certainly before COVID, the returns were on a much more improving trend because the capital discipline within these companies was improving. Too much in the past, they'd spent too much on speculative exploration and speculative ideas, um, and the returns were not as strong as they should have been. But the more uh, this occurred, the, the new management's mantra has been, no, we need to be much better at capital discipline. And you've seen that right across the industry. The amount the companies have reduced their um, expenditure on you know, oil exploration, on uh, a general capital expenditure for oil service companies has come back a lot. So the capital discipline is there. You then went into COVID and the oil price collapsed. You then came out of COVID and it started to recover. And then because of the Ukraine war, it's gone through the roof uh, and then come back a bit again. So overall, we would expect the returns of these companies to be uh, improving, and that's what we are clearly seeing in the numbers that are coming through. So we think they're businesses that fit our investment style. Uh, they are obviously more of a value element within the fund, uh, and we do have companies which are more value within the fund. So we have you know, companies like TBI Cap, which are clearly not expensive businesses within the fund. In the, in the medium term and the long term, clearly BP and Shell have got to be part of energy transition to succeed. But we think they will be, and we think they'll play a very important part in energy transition because of their distribution clout, their energy trading, their government contacts, their regula regulatory knowledge, their global spread. Uh, there's a lot of things about these businesses that give them the ability to play a very important part in energy transition. And then clearly, the debate has shifted a bit in the last six months in that people are much more talking about energy security now. So suddenly, BP and Shell have become much more important in government eyes in terms of providing energy security to nation states. And that has become a much more important area of um, interest for companies and for governments and investors um, over the last mm. few months. Yeah, yeah. 
definitely a, a sector to watch for many, many UK investors. Well, that's really interesting, but I'm afraid that is all we have time for. Um, I would simply say thank you to, uh, to Anthony for joining us today. And thank you for listening. Thank you very much. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.